Hello and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned that the ice you make in your freezer is teeming with bacteria. And actually, the ice at your favorite restaurant and the bag stuff you buy at the grocery store aren't exactly pristine specimens either. A new study out of Italy looked at 60 samples of ice cubes that were produced either at home, in a restaurant, or in an industrial facility. And they found an astounding 52 strains of bacteria from as many as 31 different species. What's really unnerving is that a consistent percentage of the ice across the board contained the bad kind of bacteria, the kind that can cause human infections. Sadly, the most bacteria-riddled ice was the stuff you're making at home, but the ice you're consuming at restaurants wasn't much farther behind. But there is a plus side to all this. There is an enjoyable way to kill all that bacteria. Smother it in alcohol. Once the researchers identified all this bacteria, they wanted to see how it would hold up to different types of alcohol. So for the study, they contaminated more ice cubes with four strains of bacteria, and then they tested various beverages on them, both straight alcohol and mixed drinks. The bacteria had the best chance at growth when it was up against vodka mixed with peach tea. One of the four strains of bacteria survived the vodka tonic mixture, and two of the four strains did pretty well against the vodka cokes. But bacteria didn't stand a chance against whiskey. And that's thanks to the drink's very high acidity levels. Whiskey has a lower pH level than vodka, and that lower pH level gives it a higher acidic content, which kills the bacteria. Cheers! This week I learned that playing video games can be good for aging brains. There is a lot of research out there on the effect video games have on the brain. This research is often conflicting, but one thing it tends to have in common is its focus demographic. Young males in their 20s. But a new study decided to see what effect video games have on the grandparents of this target audience. For the study, published in the journal Plus One, researchers recruited 33 people between the ages of 55 and 75. The video game of choice? Super Mario 64. It's me, Mario! The reason researchers chose this 1996 classic beyond its kitsch superiority was that it had 3D graphics. Then the group of seniors was split into three. One group played Super Mario regularly, the second group took piano lessons for the first time, and the third group did nothing, acting as the control. Researchers then used brain imaging technology to see if there was any change in the gray matter in the hippocampus. 
Gray matter in this area is vital to the central nervous system. It contributes to the short-term and long-term memory and to spatial orientation. It's also a significant biomarker for neurological disorders like Alzheimer's. As we age, the gray matter we have tends to atrophy, which is associated with slower brain function. So what the researchers found in the brain scans was that the piano lesson group and the control group had no change in their gray matter. But the Super Mario group did. What researchers think Mario is doing is forcing participants to build a sort of cognitive map of this virtual 3D world that they're trying to maneuver. And this cognitive architecture stimulates the hippocampus, which helps to reverse the atrophy of the gray matter that tends to come with old age. It still remains to be seen if it's Super Mario specifically that helps reverse those negative aging effects, or if it's just a matter of learning something new. But the findings are encouraging, and at least gives you an excuse to teach Grandma how to play Mario. It's me, Mario! This week I learned that it's illegal to take a photo of the Eiffel Tower at night. Yes, if you want to attempt the feat of framing strength that is fitting yourself and the giraffe-like iron lattice neck of the tower into that tiny little square on your phone, you'd better make sure to do it before sunset. The Eiffel Tower was intended to be the showstopper to the 1889 World's Fair, which Paris was hosting. It was also the 100-year anniversary of the French Revolution, so officials wanted something memorable. A call was put out for designs, and out of the more than 100 submitted, the renowned bridge builder and architect Alexander Gustave Eiffel won the bid. Although it's now largely understood that one of Eiffel's employees came up with and fine-tuned the design, but nonetheless. It took more than two years to complete the tower, which consists of more than 18,000 individual pieces of wrought iron. When it was done in 1889, it stood at 1,000 feet, making it the tallest structure in the world, a title it held for 40 years. It was meant to be temporary, though, and it was nearly torn down in 1909. But after some lobbying by Eiffel himself, city officials opted to save it, after realizing it could be used as a radio telegraph station. And it did prove useful. During World War I, the tower intercepted enemy radio communications. And it played a crucial role during the Battle of Marne in 1914, sending signals to the front lines. During World War II, it was nearly demolished again on Hitler's orders, but luckily those orders were never carried out. It would be nearly a hundred years before engineers figured out how to light the iconic tower, and herein lies the copyright problem. The Eiffel Tower itself is rights-free when it comes to photographs. But the lights, which were added in 1985, are considered not only separate from the tower, but owned by the engineer who invented them. And it is no small feat to light this tower either. Eiffel is lit by 336 powerful light projectors that are housed at the bottom of the structure and pointed up into it. 
The lights are typically yellow, but they can be swapped out for different colors to commemorate special occasions. There are also tens of thousands of smaller individual bulbs that make the tower twinkle for five minutes every hour until one in the morning. So after the sun goes down, the Eiffel Tower transforms into a veritable light show, which is owned by the artist and cannot be photographed and distributed without permission. The good news is that with something like 7 million visitors swarming its grounds every year, this copyright law is nearly impossible to enforce. This week I learned how the Earth's atmosphere acts like a force field, protecting us from all the natural space debris that's just floating around out there. And there is a ton floating around out there. Things like asteroids and meteoroids that can range in size from the inconsequential to the size of a truck and larger. And often, a lot of these little space bits come crashing into our atmosphere. Now, large impacts are pretty rare. About once a year, a car-sized asteroid hits the Earth's atmosphere, but it burns up before reaching the surface, often in an impressive fireball-like spectacle. It's believed that something like thousands of meteorites weighing as little as a pound fall to Earth every year, but most of these events go unnoticed because those little rocks land in the open ocean or in some of the large swaths of uninhabited land. The thing is, not all of these meteorites started out so small, and researchers out of Purdue University have been trying to figure out what exactly happens when extraterrestrial objects come crashing into our atmosphere. So they began studying a real-life event. Back in 2013, a meteorite exploded over Russia. In videos, you see sort of like a massive shooting star, a ball of bright white light with a tail that flies across the sky before getting brighter and brighter and brighter and then fading into a strip of light. A big chunk of this meteoroid came crashing down to Earth. And it made such a huge impact that the shockwaves shattered windows and injured 1,200 people, mostly due to glass, in a Russian city. What's crazy is that when this meteoroid entered our atmosphere, it likely weighed 10,000 tons. And yet only a fraction of that, 2,000 tons, were recovered by scientists. Now, scientists always guessed that atmospheric pressure played a role in disintegrating the meteoroid, but they weren't sure how. So they ran a simulation of this event through a computer program, and they found a totally unknown heroic process performed by our atmosphere on such massive flying debris. What happens is that as an object enters our atmosphere, our high-pressure air enters the object through its pores, cracking the meteoroid and pushing its body apart, which causes it to explode and break into smaller pieces, like the ones that came crashing down into Russia. And this is what protects us lowly humans from the relatively smaller meteoroids that pass into Earth. Now, there is a limit to our protective atmosphere. The larger the meteoroid, the greater chance it has at surviving the high air pressure impact. Also, iron meteoroids, because they are denser and have less space for all that air to blow through, would stand a pretty good chance at penetrating our atmosphere intact and crashing down to Earth. But fear not. 
according to NASA, it's really only once every few million years that an object large enough to threaten Earth's civilization comes flying along. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned, you can head on over to theweek.com slash podcasts, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainer series. And until next week, I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening. (laughs) ¶¶